John 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. I love that phrase, if you read over it, and he had to pass. Uh, it's kind of pregnant with meaning. He had to is, means like there was divine will. He was responding to the Father to go through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Already John is leading us to consider history, right? He could have just said, Jesus popped in by a well. And he sat there because he wanted to drink. But no, he's, he's laying out the history that is a part of the land, land-based history. This will come in handy later as we continue. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Some context there. Uh, Samaritans believed that they worshipped the true Hebrew God, that they had the true temple, that they they stopped at the Pentateuch and they those first books of the Bible, and they had their own translation, but they realized that that was the true revelation of this Hebrew God. So they believed that they had the real understanding of who this God was that called people. And so she is... They look down on the Jews as well, even though the Jews look down on the Samaritans as polluters of, of the true revelation of God. And so there's this deep animosity to the point where just being around a Samaritan woman would require you to go clean yourself afterwards. That's how much they just despised being around each other. So she's, first of all, shocked that he would even talk to her. And so verse 10 continues, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Again, referencing history. She's trying to claim the history of Israel on behalf of the Samaritans. He gave us the well, she continues, and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. Well, that sounds awesome, right? So that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is in the middle of the day. People did not draw water at noon. They did it early in the morning or late in the evening. And so she's like, that sounds awesome. I don't have to do this anymore. Give me that awesome water. And so Jesus continues, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right. And saying, I have a husband. I know this. I already know this. For you had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's interesting reading this in conversation because it's almost like she's changing the subject. Oh, okay, that's cool. But you told me to worship over here. Again, she's making an appeal, though, to history and to land. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. The mountain she's referring to is where the Samaritan temple was. 
And so she's saying, which one is it? Samaritan temple? Is it Jerusalem? Jesus answers her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. If you're underlining in your Bible, that verse 23 is super, 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 super important. 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You can underline that one too. I mean, you can underline the whole chapter with those two. <laughs> the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's me, girl, right? Verse 39, he continues. We're going to jump down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. As we get started here today, we're going to use that passage today to reflect on three things. We want to look at worship past, present, and future. This passage talks about three things that true worshipers are. If you want to write those things down, you can. I don't know. I'll probably put them up on our group page or something. But true worshipers are three things. They are students of history. They are formed by God. And they are witnesses of hope. They are students of history, formed by God, and witnesses of hope. The first thing to look at in this passage of Scripture, the first thing to know is that history matters. History matters. Look at what uh, Jesus tells her in verse 20, right? This is a really interesting response. She says, you know, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You say, Jerusalem, where should we worship? And he says, you know, the day is coming where neither of those things will matter, right? But he responds and continues, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Her history was incorrect, and Jesus could have stopped right before there and said, hey, the day's going to come when neither of this, these things matter. Let's just, let me just tell you exactly what you need to do from here on out. But he doesn't say that. He says salvation is from the Jews because he's trying to get her to understand that the history that has led up to this moment matters. It informs our understanding of worship. It doesn't complete it. Right? Jesus is the full revelation of God. But the history before this matters. You see, God is a great storyteller. And anyone who's read a good story or, or watched a great movie knows that you got to earn the climax of that storyline, right? You can't just start. And a lot of times we come into worship and we like to ignore the entire Old Testament. Hey, it starts with Jesus. You know, we're just going to do what they do in the New Testament. We don't have to worry about the sacrificing or any of those things. We're just going to do exactly what the first church did, even though they didn't have guitar amps or any of those things. We're going to do what they did, right? Um, even though, like, what we do seems so vastly different. We kind of rest on, well, you know, it's a, it's a new covenant. But the truth is that, that Jesus comes to provide greater revelation of what we've learned about God in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the early church theologians said that the, the Old Testament is the manger in which the New Testament is laid, right? You, you can't have one without the other, that they both matter for context. And so the story that God is telling 
involves a worshiping people. It involves greater and greater revelation. It involves need. And the climax of this story is Jesus. But you need the history to have appreciation and you need the history to have understanding, right? How many of y'all have a favorite movie, right? Steve, what's your favorite movie? Shawshank Redemption, right? Did you stop watching movies after Shawshank Redemption? Did you decide never to watch another movie that came out before Shawshank Redemption? You were like, this movie's so good, everything before it, don't need to watch it. No, right? Like, that would be absurd. Have you ever had, uh, I don't know, you listen to a great album, an artist you love. Man, this, this is their best album. I'm done with all their old stuff. I'm going to ignore it. It was good when I experienced it, but I love this one. Never again. I'm going to delete all my MP3s. Cool reference, Caleb. The, the idea is, right, like the, the history provides the context. And this is true of God's people. It's true of you personally. This is the gospel, right? And when we come into church and we start with resurrection, we almost cheapen it. The point is not to rehearse our sin and our history so that we might be bogged down by it, but we rehearse those things that in the weight of reflecting on them, the light of grace seems brighter, right? When you, re, when you need reorientation, it's, it's with a bright light. If, you walk, if you're in a dim room and you walk into another dim room, you don't need to adjust to your sight. We live in a dim world Monday through Saturday. Sunday is when that light shines and we have to reorient people. But the way we have to do it is to provide a sense of need so that grace might feel abundant and powerful and even scandalous. This is why history matters. As we study worship, we have to study history. And the way that the church historically, the old church, Old Testament, the idea of memory is so radically different from how we conceptualize memory, right? Like we think of memory like, oh, that was sweet. You remember when that happened? That was really cool. In, in the practice of the Hebrew people, Remembrance was an active thing. My uh, One of my professors at seminary said this week, if you were to ask someone in ancient Israel to remember their, their high school graduation, they'd say, hold on, and they'd come back in the room with their cap and gown and they'd walk through the whole service. That's how they remember, right? They rehearse and they represent so that way they might experience grace anew, that it might be visceral. This is what we're called to do on Sunday mornings. We walk through the gospel story because it forms us. And this is the second point. True worshipers are formed by God, right? They are formed by God. The Samaritan woman's past is in here for a reason in this passage. Because what does she do immediately after every time God reveals something, Jesus reveals something about himself, she responds, I want that, right? So when, he, when he's talking to her about the water in verse 10, uh, he says, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying you give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And just a few verses below, she's like, give me that water, right? That sounds awesome. This is the rhythm of worship. It's a rhythm of revelation and response. Right? We, we see that we have a need, but, we, but revealed in our worship is the heart of a God who wants to meet that need. And so we respond to him with earnest confession, and he responds to us with assurance of faith, and we respond to him with joy. This is a rhythm. It's a back and forth. People call it the dialogue of worship. This is what we engage in every week. God has the first word in worship. This is what's really important. As you study history, and you realize that it is your calling as the body of Christ to be formed by God into his image as his church, you realize that worship is something we jump into midstream. 
God starts it and we respond to it. And so that, that provides a lot of freedom in our gatherings. We don't have to feel like we're conjuring the presence of the spirit of God. It's already here in the room. And so going back to that Peterson quote, we're responding to it. We're going, hey, the presence is here. What does God want me to learn today? What does God want me to know about him today? How does God want me to leave here different than when and how I walked in? This is what it means to be formed by God, to worship his way in response to his revelation that exists. Look at all the arguments the Samaritan woman had. They were all bound to history, but they were all bound to a misunderstanding of worship. Right? She said, first of all, worship we know, as we discussed, is fellowship. And so she's like, how can I have fellowship with you? Right? We should not have any contact with one another. And Jesus is essentially like, that's, that's foolishness. I have living water. It's for everyone. And then later on, she's, so she mentions Jacob's well. And later on, she mentions the Samaritan temple on the mount. She's like, where should I worship? Her conception of worship was bound by history. But behind that was a desire to control worship, to let culture control what worship was. And Jesus is essentially saying, no, 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 no. Like, it's not that none of those concerns matter. It's that they're not even on the, in the right track like, let me tell you how to worship because I'm the one who starts my worship. And so what he does is he reorients her away from this, this wrongly historically rooted worship and into a right understanding. He says salvation is from the Jews, but the day is coming, right? History matters, but my revelation is pointing to this. This is really important, right? Because what he's revealing in this moment are some really, really key things about worship. So look at verse 23 one more time, the one I told you to underline so much that you can barely read the words. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, and it's only spelled with one P in my Bible, so in your face, Clint, will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is already searching for these people. Right? So he's already started the search for his true worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But look at that statement. What is it revealing? God is the object of our worship, but he's also the subject of our worship. He's what empowers our worship. What is he looking for? What is the mark of true worshipers? It's two things. What does he say? Spirit and truth. This is a Trinitarian statement. Spirit and truth. Jesus is what incarnate? He's the word. He's the way, the truth, and the life, right? And we know that this is a foretaste of the coming of the Spirit, which will abide in us and draw us to Jesus, as Hebrews says, the great high priest who leads us to the presence of the Father. True worshipers are those who worship God, in God, through God, with God. Like, God's done all the work. That's the best part about all this. It's not true worshipers. I tell my mom this all the time. It's not true worshipers are those that sing in key. Right? Or dad, those that can clap on time. Like, that's great. You know, you know what, mom? You're going to sing so great in heaven. Just keep your, you know, keep, keep praying and waiting for that day. Right? Like, none of it is performative. None of it is performative. And think about how much that flies in the face of our culture. Where, like, the worship industrial complex, which is what I like to call it, we're going to put out a new album every 10 months, and it's going to have 15 songs, and then we're going to put out an EP in Spanish, and then a remix EP, and then, uh, that's fine, but the, the cycle of that leads us to equate worship with performance, with consumption, and Jesus is saying, the Father isn't seeking that kind of true worship. 
The Father is seeking people who worship in spirit and in truth. And both of those things he provides to us in abundance in the work of Jesus and the coming of the spirit. Worship must be Trinitarian. Worship is both our end, it's what we'll be doing forever, but it's also the means, it's how we are conformed right now into the image of Christ as we look ahead to the worship of forever. This is why Jesus must be the center of our worship. A word to write down, it's kind of a weird one, Christocentric, Christocentric. Jesus has to be the center of our worship. He's the way, the truth, and the life. It's his spirit that abides in us as one body. It's his example that we are trying to conform to as we represent him to the world. Our worship must be Trinitarian. It must be Christocentric. He has to be the center of it because we are his body. If Jesus is not the center of our worship, then it is not Christian worship. It's not the worship of the body of Christ. The final thing is that true worshipers are witnesses of hope. Look at verse 39. I love this. Look at what this woman does. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. She showed him. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody who was not Jesus knew everything I did, I wouldn't be running into a town and be like, this guy knows everything about me, all my dirty secrets. It's awesome. No, it's the fact that tied with that knowledge is grace. Total life revelation. The revelation of eternal life, of pure life, of fullness of life deserves total life response. And this is what that woman did. This is worship. She ran back into the town and said, this is the Messiah I just met who revealed himself to me. My response can be nothing but proclaiming who he is. I'm sure she sounded crazy walking into town. There's this dude over there and he knows everything about me. It's crazy. Right? And people are like, all right, well, let's see him. And then he knows everything about them. And they're like, this guy's the real deal. Right? This is, this is the response that grace engenders in us. We, we want to proclaim who Jesus is. There is a watching, needy world around us. And we worship intention. Right? So this is worship that is past, present, and future. In this world, in this life. Worship is going to be presented in a linear fashion. We study history so that right now we might be better worshipers as we look ahead to the moment and the time and the eternity where our worship will be perfected in Christ in heaven. We're not there yet, but we know that the kingdom has broken into our lives right now and that we might bear witness to the hope we have now and the truth that that hope will be experienced in fullness soon. This is why worship is more than singing. I've been talking for how long? We barely talked about singing. Singing's great. I mean, I was crying just hearing this song and looking around at people singing. But more than just the song, I was looking around into the eyes of people who have in them the Spirit of God. That's the essence of worship. This is why Jesus tells her in verse 22, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. And he's saying this in response to her. You know, he says, it's the hour is coming neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's not saying that Jerusalem doesn't matter. He's saying that the new Jerusalem is coming and the gates are widening. The gates are expanding as the new creation comes. You are the gates. You are the walls. You are the representatives of the new Jerusalem. And in your worship, as you are conformed to the image of Christ, you are bearing witness to the newness and the fullness of life that is coming in the new Jerusalem. Worship is past. It's present. It's future. It's all three of these things. And this is why I started out by saying that godly worship, Christian worship, is so much bigger and so much better than we could possibly fathom. That this Bible is so 
full of, of wisdom and depth and resources and joy regarding worship, which is our end and our means, that the only way to grow as worshipers is to dive headfirst into it and see what God would have us to do in worship. And so I've really been reconsidering how I put sets together. Just this week, I had a setup and I was like, I really like this set. And I realized that I am putting plans together and asking God to fit into them rather than going, God, what are you already doing with my church and where can I fit in? And that is worship that is responsive. It's worship that waits on revelation. And that's where I want us to go in 2019. It's where I believe we're going to go. It's where I want to challenge us to go together. God, we thank you for the unbounded, unceasing wisdom of your word. And God, we thank you that you have so much in store for us, so much life and so much joy and so much hope in store for us that we are offered, that we can experience when we approach you open-handed and open-hearted. So God, I pray for this ministry. I pray for the people in this room the men and women that you have called to this church to minister to one another, to their brothers and sisters on Sundays. I pray that we would be a ministry marked by quick response, but quick response that flows out of revelation, that our first step would always be to ask, God, what are you showing us? What are you teaching us? What do you have for us? That we would not be a ministry marked by our own ingenuity, or our own artistic craft, all of which are great, God, but all of which are tools to proclaim you greater and louder and more vivid and bright colors to a people that need to know you. God, I pray every Sunday would be an opportunity for our church to reorient themselves around the gospel story, but I pray that that would start daily with the people in this room. And we thank you that your word gives us that opportunity to remember, to be formed right now, and to look ahead to the hope that is coming coming sooner and closer every day. God, I thank you for these people. I thank you for how they encourage me, how they bless their church. I pray that you bless these conversations here together. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.